If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John chapter 6. I've been told that at least on one occasion, when I was younger, I was given a gift, and rather than play with the gift, I played all day with the box that it came in. Uh, perhaps this has been your experience. Perhaps you've uh, seen this as well. Perhaps it's been the, the, the thing with your kids. You buy them, uh, frankly, a, a, an expensive gift, a pretty nice gift. But their desire is not for the gift, it's for the box. And though you're happy, you're happy that they're happy, that it's a good Christmas morning, that they're zooming around the house inside the box with the box on their head, acting like a robot or whatever they're doing with it. But at the same time, part of you is a little miffed because they missed the point. They spent a lot of money on that gift, right? You want to say, hey, look at this thing that I got you, right? Uh, sometimes as we're kids and sometimes as adults, we, we miss the point. Something is presented to us, something is given to us, but we don't get it. And instead of, instead of seeing into what it is that we're supposed to be seeing, instead of grasping hold of what it is we're supposed to be grasping hold of, our, our eyes and our priorities and our thinking is somewhere else. And this is no more true than when it comes to the things of God. Sometimes God is, is putting something right in front of our face and saying, this is, this is what I want you to see, this is what I want you to have, and yet we don't see it because our eyes are fixed somewhere else. Our desires are for something else. Uh, last week, we began a, a short series in the Gospel of John. John is famous for recording uh, Jesus' I am statements, where Jesus would say, I am this and I am that. And, and on all of these eight statements, he is saying something about who he is and what he has come to accomplish. And in looking at these statements, what we see is that ultimately, everything's about Jesus. From beginning to end, it's all about him. And last week, we looked at this kind of foundational statement where, where Jesus is talking with the Jewish people and, um, and uh, they're getting frustrated with him and they don't quite understand what he's saying. At the end of the day, uh, Jesus asserts his authority for his teaching by saying, uh, look, you're so keen on Abraham, but you didn't understand before Abraham was, I am. And of course, we read that their response was to pick up uh, stones to kill him. There was, they, knew, they knew what he was saying. Jesus was saying, I am the eternal God in flesh. I have always existed. I will forever exist. And now the God that you say you worship is standing before you in your very presence. This morning we want to continue looking at these I am statements. And specifically this morning, what we want to see is how not just us, but how people uh, will very often miss what God is intending for them to see. Very specifically when it comes to the very essence of our life. The one thing that you hear people talking about all the time, all the time in interviews, particularly from Hollywood, is a desire to be fulfilled in their life. And they'll say, you know, yeah, I was an actor and da, 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 and I got this involved in this charity and now I feel fulfilled. Really? Are you sure you feel fulfilled? Do you, know, do you know how to find full fulfillment in your life? Well, Jesus reveals it very often, even when we have the best of intentions, even when we think we're doing what God wants us to do and we're pursuing God, we're not seeking the things that He wants us to seek. And we're trying to find satisfaction in things that will ultimately bring us no satisfaction. This morning, we want to see that it ultimately it is Jesus who brings us true and lasting and full satisfaction to our lives. So if you have your copy of God's Word, let's read. I want to read John chapter 6. I want to begin at verse 22. 
We're picking up right after a, a scene that, uh, that, that's obviously taking place right before this, and we'll, we'll talk about what that is in just a few minutes. For now, let's start at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd, that is the crowd that had listened to Jesus' teaching and had experienced a miracle with Him, that cr- the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near in the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of God. Jesus here says in this I am statement, I am the bread of life. But what does that mean? What does it mean for him to be the bread of life? What, what difference does that make in our life? That whether or not we actually believe that. This morning what we want to see are, are three truths that flow from our text, that flow from the reality that Jesus himself is the bread of life. First we want to see that Jesus reveals our misguided cravings. Jesus reveals our misguided cravings. I think it's probably safe to say that everyone likes something for nothing, right? Everybody likes something for nothing. People will, will, will love to hunt out a good deal, even a great deal. Some people will drive great distances for a really great deal. 
But everyone loves getting something for free, right? I mean, people will, will line up for hours if you're giving away something for free. And, and in regards to that aspect of humanity, things haven't really changed in 2,000 years. Just before this, the story that comes before this is Jesus feeding of 5,000 men and their families. Now, he didn't do this by ordering McDonald's, okay? And that would disappoint some of you, but, but it was better if you would have been there. Uh, they've been teaching all, Jesus has been teaching all day, and they reached the point where the disciples are kind of scratching their heads and saying, look, Jesus, you know, there's not a taco stand around. How are we going to get these people food? Uh, they're all hungry. And Jesus says, does anybody have any food? And so there's, there's one guy, and he's often been portrayed as a little kid, but it, 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 we don't know. He could have been anywhere from 12 to 21. It's, it's just this young guy, and he's brought his lunch with him. He's a, he's a smart guy, and he's got some fish, and he's got some loaves of bread. And the disciples are like, Jesus, do you not see the crowds here? Now, you know, the thing is, when I was little, it's like 5,000. You know, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Well, it's 5,000 men. What about, and then there's their families. So if they're all, let's say they're all married, that's 10,000 people. If they're good Jews, then they've all got at least one kid, right? So that's 15,000 people, and we could go up from there. And they're looking at all those crowds and saying, oh, there's a couple loaves and some fish, Jesus. What are we going to do with this? And he says, let's pray. And Jesus blesses the food. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but the, the bread and the fish multiplied to the point that everyone had their fill that day. That would have been an amazing thing to behold. In fact, it was so amazing that the crowd, some of the crowd there saw this and believed this was a sign that Jesus was the Messiah, their idea of a Messiah, a political king who would rule over them and here now miraculously provide for them. Hey, we never have to work again for, for anything. We get everything for free. And so John tells us they tried by force to take him to make, the, to make Jesus king over them. And yet Jesus quickly flees from them off to the mountains. And if it's what he usually does in the mountains, then it's presumably to pray. By nightfall, Jesus' disciples, who did not go with him, are at the sea. They get a boat and they begin sailing over to the other side of the sea. And they get about three miles into the trip and suddenly the winds and the waves begin to get rough. And, you know, if you read the Gospels, well, this happens a lot. Well, part of the problem is this particular sea is below, uh, b b below the normal sea level. And so you have uh, all kinds of crazy uh, wind currents that, that can come up and, and start these storms. Nevertheless, here they are in the midst of the storm trying to row and suddenly they see something out on the water. Now, you're experienced fishermen. What, what are you, you going to be afraid of? Another boat, right? Collide with another boat. The thing capsizes. You're drowning in the water, right? Well, it's too small to be a boat. As it gets closer in the midst of the rain and the storm, they see it's, in fact, Jesus walking on the water. Now, we have a common phrase, right? Uh, you know, oh, you act like that guy walks on water. I mean, that, that's even in our common parlance, so it's no big thing to us. But here's people, they've never seen anybody walk on water before. They've never seen a movie where someone digitally is put on the water. They've never seen some kind of magic trick where the guy knows where the rocks are. Nothing. And they see this, and, and they don't know who it is, and, they, and they're, they're freaked out. And he says, he says, hey, it's okay, it's me. And I love it. It says, they welcomed him into the boat. <laughs> I love it. Like they're going to say, no, don't, don't come into the boat. No, so Jesus gets into the boat, and then another miracle occurs. It says, they were immediately on the sure. What a day. What a day to be with Jesus. Well, these people know Jesus has gone. He went off to the mountains. They didn't see him. The disciples are not there. And so they're thinking, what is going on? And so they, they go en masse looking for Jesus and they arrive here. Jesus tells us that, or John rather tells us at the end of the chapter, that all of this is taking place in the context of Jesus 
teaching in the synagogue. And so here he is uh, teaching. The crowds have not forgotten the miracle that was just performed. They're searching for him, but Jesus knows they're not really searching for him. The crowds are looking for Jesus, but they're not really looking for Jesus. They're looking for what they are going to get from Jesus. So in verse 25, it says, when these people found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, when I read that, maybe I'm a little cynical, but my first thought is they're thinking, did he already feed everybody breakfast? Did we miss out on the free food this time? When did you get here? Right? And it's funny because Jesus totally blows up. doesn't even answer the question. What does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. But do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Here's Jesus teaching in the synagogue, John will later tell us. And these guys don't come in and say, what, what, what passage are you teaching on? What, what's been the Bible reading for today? What has he said so far? The first thing they're saying is, Jesus, when did you get here? You got anything good for us? And Jesus says, I know what's in your heart. You're looking for me, but you're really not looking for me. You want what I can give to you. He says, you saw the signs, but you didn't really see them. You saw me do a miracle, but you didn't see what it was for. Instead, you've come here to fill your bellies again. But yet what Jesus did was more than just feed people. Jesus says that what he did was meant to be a sign. Feeding the 5,000, feeding that group of people was not just about filling their stomachs once. It wasn't just about revealing his power to, to create from nothing. There was something there that was supposed to point beyond itself, beyond, point beyond the meal. It was supposed to point to Jesus and something about him, but the people missed it. And so Jesus says, look, I know you're looking for food, but you need to set your gaze higher than that. You need, to, you need to think about something more than just food for your bellies. He says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. You see, these people were under the, the assumption that, that the kingdom of God was all about their material well-being. Not being ruled by the Romans, having their own kingdom again being blessed by God in such a way that perhaps even now they don't have to work for anything. That they just get free stuff from the king all the time. And Jesus rebukes them for it. He says, you're working hard for the food that will only be good for a little while, but that's not what the kingdom is about. Now you have to understand, Jesus, when he says, don't labor for the food that perishes, he's not saying give up your jobs. He's not saying just, just, just quit and God's going to provide. It's the exact opposite of what he's saying. In fact, the Bible elsewhere teaches work is very good. I know we don't like to hear this, but guess what? Work came before sin entered the world. Work was here before the fall. We are designed for work. And I know sometimes we think because in heaven we are fully spiritual people separated from our bodies and we get this idea that for all eternity we're just kind of floating around playing the harp. In the new heavens and the new earth it is pictured that we will be working for God. Not, though, in the labor and the toil and the curse that sin has brought upon us. In fact, work is such a good thing and so important. Paul will even write, even write to the Thessalonians and he will say, Look, if you don't work, you don't eat. He says, the church does not need to support lazy people who will not get out of bed in the morning and go do an honest day's work. So we're not, we're not, don't support them. Tell them to go get a job like everybody else. This is what God created them for. 
And so Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not saying, hey, don't work. In fact, he's not really talking about work per se. He's talking about the proper pursuit of our lives. It's not about working works that God wants us to do to gain bread, but rather it's about making sure we have the right priority in our lives. And his point here is that physical work and physical food point to deeper spiritual truths. Just think for a minute. Most of you in here uh, are uh, uh, all grown up, and it's good. I've been waiting a long time for it. No, but you're, you're adults, and you're married, right? And you've got this wedding ring, okay? Now, do you just wear that because it's a nice piece of jewelry, or does it have significance? Hopefully, it has significance, right? Can I at least hear one amen from a man, please? Okay, there you go. I, I know it's amen for the women, but come on, men. <laughs> Take the lead here, okay? Um, what does it represent? Well, for me... Uh, for, for mine, it represents uh, 10 years, 10 years of a commitment that I made to one woman for the rest of my life. It, it, it represents, you know, uh, it represents more than just the worth of the ring itself. It represents an, an unmeasurable and incalculable treasure of memories and life experience of a shared life together, right? Now, I, I wear another ring on this hand. And again, is it just for for bling? The pastor likes the bling? No. Uh, This represents three and a half hard years of labor uh, to get my uh, seminary degree, which was built upon another four years of hard labor in college, which was in turn built upon another four years of labor in high school. But in some ways, these things overlap because those three and a half years were also the first three and a half years of my marriage. Now, what's my point? My point is these rings aren't just rings. They're not just jewelry. They point to something else. They point to something far better, uh, far more meaningful in my life. Likewise, likewise, Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, look, physical work, physical food, these things point to something else. These things point to a deeper spiritual reality. He says, labor for the food, not that perishes, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Only Jesus can give us the spiritual food that He's talking about because He is the one upon whom God has set His seal. In other words, He is the one upon, uh, uh, with whom which God is well pleased. Jesus is the one who does the Father's will. Jesus is the one, the only one, who's been given the privilege of giving spiritual food which is endures those that are spiritually hungry but the crowds don't see that the crowds miss it they're just worried about their stomachs as we think about this crowd we have to ask ourselves what do we crave what is the pursuit of our lives what is it that we are ultimately working for particularly those of you who who say that you follow Jesus, that you love Jesus. Why are you following him? Why do you say you love him? Do you say that because you think it means he's going to give you something? You say, oh yeah, Jesus, I'll do whatever you want as long as you take care of me. Is that what's driving your life? Are you working for the things of this world that will ultimately perish? Or have you set your gaze higher? Far too often, I've said before, Jesus becomes an idol. So how can Jesus be an idol? We worship him. He becomes an idol because we don't really, we don't really worship Jesus for Jesus. We worship Jesus because he gives us things. 
He becomes the idol upon which my marriage is better. He becomes the idol upon which I can become a good parent. He becomes the idol upon which I can have a good job and a successful career. Those are the things we really value. Those are the things we really worship. And so Jesus becomes an idol, simply the means to get those things. Can Jesus do those things for you? Absolutely he can. But even if he didn't, he's still worth our worship. Ultimately, the question we have to ask ourselves is, where, where does our priorities lie? Are we, like, are we like the crowds here? And all we're worried about is the things that we can see, the things that we can hold on to, the things we can put in our mouths? Or we, have we set our gaze higher? Here's the test. Here's the test. You say, well, I don't know. I think I'm... Okay, here's the test. Particularly in this area, but if you, if you look online, you see it's, it's pretty much growing everywhere the job situation, the economic situation. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's worried about it. The question is, how are you going to spot, respond to you who call yourself a Christian? How are you going to respond? Are you going to follow the world's example and hoard what you have? Or are you going to say, Jesus is more valuable than this paper money? Jesus is more valuable than my second and third car. Jesus is more valuable than my house, which I might lose. Jesus is more valuable whether or not I have a job that, that stokes my self-esteem. Or are you not going to say that? And you're going to, to worry about and cling after and try to hold on to the things that ultimately are going to perish in this world. See, that's the test. That's the test. When, when particularly in, in our situation now, it's where are our priorities going to lie? Are we going to continue to love and serve and to worship Jesus the way that he's called us to? Or are we going to be worried about the things of the here and now? See, when Jesus comes, he reveals all of our misguided cravings. That's, in some ways, the bad news. Our sin is exposed. But, but friends and loved ones, here's the good news. Secondly, Jesus also satisfies our spiritual hunger forever. Jesus satisfies our spiritual hunger forever. Jesus has told them, don't labor, don't work for the bread that doesn't perish, uh, or, or rather, uh, that does perish. Instead, work for, labor for the bread that does not perish, the one that endures. The people want to know about this bread. How do we get it, they say? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And they still don't understand. What did Jesus say? The Son will give you this bread. It's a gift to be received. And yet they assume that they need to work for it. They assume that somehow they're able to obtain it. They're somehow thinking in their confusion that by their zeal, they will earn this bread for themselves. And Jesus tries to set them straight again in verse 28. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has set. Since Jesus says the work of God, though that is the work that God requires, isn't really work at all. It's faith, it's belief. And it's not just belief in the abstract. It's not just vague belief out there somewhere. Just believe in something, have hope. No, it's believe in the one God has sent. So today, when you read in Christianity Today, of all places, a magazine that was once known for, for being the, uh, the, 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 the stalwart evangelical magazine of the day, now has an article about, well, we should not think that God can only speak and work and display His grace in Christianity alone. We should look in the other religions. What? What? What does, what, does, what, does, what does God say here? What does Jesus say here? He says that you are to believe in His Son. You don't believe in other things to see God work. God does not speak truths to other religions the same way. He speaks through His Son. 
Jesus says, believe in me. I am the one God has sent. Believe in me. But the people still don't get it. They say to him, well, what sign do you do then that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus, at this point, has just been teaching with simple authority. In this session of the synagogue, he's not done anything supernatural. He's not done any miracles. He's just been proclaiming God's truth based on the authority of his character. He's been making claims, amazing claims and assertions about God and being part of his kingdom. And now the, the, the crowd is demanding some kind of sign, some kind of uh, marker of authenticity of who Jesus is. And of course, it comes as no surprise, what do they bring up? The manna that God gave to the people in the Old Testament. Why? Because, as Paul would say, their God is their stomachs. Yes, they just saw the feeding of the 5,000. And so, you know, some would say, well, maybe, you know, uh, the commentators say, well, maybe this was the Exodus story reading of the synagogue that day. Who knows? But whatever it is, they're going back to the prophet Moses in the Old Testament. If you'll remember, while the people of Israel uh, wandered around for 40 years, God, every morning, gave them bread. They would go to sleep. The next morning they wake up and bread is all over the place. And they would pick this stuff up and God said, you cook it, you eat it for that day and then you throw it out because you got to do it again the next morning. And some people thought, well, that's stupid, God. Aren't you smarter than this? We'll just save up more than we need and then we don't have to go collect the next day. But guess what? It goes rotten. So God's trying to teach them to depend upon him, to obey him, to trust him. And so for 40 years, they're going out eating bread they're not working for, eating bread they're not working for, eating bread they're not working for. And the people say, well, Moses did this. What are you going to do? Moses gave God's people bread from heaven. What are you going to do? Jesus, prove that you're greater than Moses. And Jesus, again, has to correct them. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the bread from heaven. My Father even gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, you got it all wrong. Moses was not giving you bread. God was sending the bread each morning. What's more, now He is offering to you through me true and lasting spiritual bread to eat. This bread comes down to heaven, sent by God, that the world might have everlasting life. Yeah, because these people are spiritually blind, and they cannot see what Jesus is saying. He speaks plainly to them, clearly to them, and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's the great truth the people were missing. They were so fixated on getting actual bread that they missed what the bread was pointing to. They wanted something that the people had under Moses, manna, this bread that God sent from heaven. But they failed to see what the manna was all about. In fact, they failed to see what the Old Testament was all about. You know, one of the pastors that, that I love to read his sermons, an old Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane, he talked about the difference between reading the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he said, reading the Old Testament is like looking at the bride before the wedding. He says, you know, uh, before the wedding, she, she, she's kind of hidden away somewhere. And when she finally does come out, she's, got, she's wearing the veil. And, uh, you know, her hands are kind of folded up under the, uh, under the flowers. And uh, you, can, you can tell who it is behind the veil, but you can't see them clearly. And then through the, through the service, the, her back is to you. And, and then, but then he says, then you read the New Testament, what happens? The bride's veil is taken off. And she embraces the bridegroom. They kiss, and then they turn with joy to face the audience. And he says, suddenly you clearly see the beauty and the glory of the bride. Likewise, Martin Lloyd-Jones 
he said that reading the Old Testament is like being faced with a brick wall and having to, to jump up and peer over it. And he, and he says, he says well, what do you get? He says, can you see what's on the other side? And he says, only in glimpses. You just get this kind of fleeting glimpse. He says, but then reading the New Testament, he says, it's like someone has picked you up and chucked you over the wall. And you're standing there, you can gaze, you can take it on, you can see with clarity. What are they getting at? What was revealed in the, or, or hidden in the Old Testament has become revealed in the New. All of these things are pointing to, driving towards, helping God's people to see and understand who Jesus is when he comes. Why did God give the people manna. It was to tell them, it was to prepare them that he is not just going to provide physical food, but spiritual food through his son. Jesus comes on the scene and the veil is gone as it were. All these things are pointing to Jesus and yet they cannot see it. They cannot see it. And it's not just the written word of God. It's all things, all things are about Jesus. Think about it. Why did God, have you, ever, have you ever stopped and thought about some of the things that God could have done different? Why did God make noses? <laughs> noses are odd things, aren't they? I mean, they come in all shapes and sizes. Some of the cute little buttons, uh, little button nose, and some of them, you know, are like mine, the Chief Cherokee nose, you know? And you're, you know, and you're, and you're just thinking, you know, uh, just thinking, God, you know, what, what are you thinking when you do this? What about eating? I mean, have you ever thought about that? I mean, eating can be fun if it's good food. But, you know, we're spoiled. Most people don't get good food. Most people get food that allows them to survive. It's not real tasty. They're happy for it. But it's not like a culinary delight. And yet every day we have to put this stuff in our mouth. We have to chew it up and it goes into our system. The best of it gets taken out. The worst of it gets, gets sent on its way. And we have to do the whole thing over again the next day. Over and over and over again. Why in the world would God make us that way? Why would he make us so that when we don't eat for, let's say, one day or two days, suddenly the stomach is saying, hey, where's the food? What happened to the bread that was here? What happened to the pasta? I need to get some chicken in me here. You understand? I'm hungry. And, and you begin to get those kind of achy pains thinking, oh, my goodness, I need to get some food. What, what do we got in the fridge? If you're a teenager, it's like every 30 seconds, it's like you get that pain and you're going, oh, I don't know. That's because your body is growing like crazy. And, and why did God make us with that kind of ache and that longing for food? You know, it could have been that we just had to keep track. Oh, I haven't eaten in 36 hours. I better do something or else my blood sugar may fall. I mean, that could have been how he did it. But no, he created us physically to have a longing and a deep actual hunger for food. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? He did that to help us to see our need for Jesus, who is the bread of life. Because you see, what sometimes we're not aware of, what sometimes we want to put in the back of our minds that we don't want to think about, is that we just don't have a spiritual hunger. We just don't have stomach craving. We have a soul hunger. From the very beginning, when, when, when Adam and Eve were separated from God and fell into sin, we have had a deep longing and hunger in our souls to be back in a right relationship with God. That's what we were created for. And the problem is... The problem is, in our sinfulness, we try and fill it up with other things beside God. We try and fill, fill that hunger in our soul with all kinds of other things. Things of this world that are good, but fleeting. Things like money. 
and, and sex and all manner of possessions. We think those things will bring us fulfillment. Those things will make, uh, make the craving in our souls be satisfied and go away. In just a couple of weeks, people all over this country will be buying stuff and giving stuff and filling their longings with, with, in their souls with Christmas gifts. And some people are going to buy themselves things. And they're going to love it. It's going to be a gadget. It's going to be a car. It's going to be something. And they're going to be so happy. It's going to be that massive television or whatever it is. And you know what? It's only going to last a week, maybe two weeks, maybe three. And then you know what? The longing is going to be there again, and they're going to need something else. This is why things like alcohol and pornography become addictive. The little bit we had at first doesn't satisfy us anymore. And we need more, and we need more, and we need more, and we need more. Because there is a longing in our souls, and we're trying to fill it up with other things, and it's not working. It's not working. Why? Because only one thing is going to work. Only one thing is going to satisfy our souls. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why he comes and he says, I am the bread of life. You feed on me and you will not hunger or thirst anymore. For all of eternity, you will be satisfied. So when Jesus says the work of God is to trust in the one that he sent, he's saying, trust in me. Trust in Jesus Christ. Believe that he will give us true satisfaction, that he is the one true greatest treasure that we can ever have in our lives, the one that has come down from God himself. It means we take our eyes off the things of this world, things that will perish, that will rust, that will fall apart and break and decay, and we receive the eternal, the lasting, precious salvation that God offers to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come to me and find that I am the bread of life. Come to me and find food for your soul, and you will need nothing else again. And the awesome thing is, the most amazing thing is, that when we do go to Jesus, we see that Jesus is also the one that keeps God's gift of believers. This is the third and last thing that we see. Jesus keeps God's gift of believers. Jesus says, come to me, feed on me, find me. But there's always a temptation in our minds to think that somehow Jesus doesn't want us. Jesus is not going to be happy with us. Jesus is not going to like us, and he's going to turn us away. And here, Jesus teaches one of the most mind-blowing and faith-encouraging truths of the Bible. And it, yet, it's set against the fact that the crowd still not will believe in Jesus. And Jesus knows it. Listen closely to what he says, verse 36. I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who goes to Jesus? All that the Father gives him. And what happens when they go to him? They will never be cast out. In other words, you will not be turned away from Jesus. Do you hear that? No one's ever going to go to Jesus and he's going to say, I don't, I don't like the way you look. You're too sinful. Try and clean yourself up and, cut, and come back and try again. Furthermore, if we truly go to Jesus, they will never reach a point where Jesus says, you know what? I've had it with you. You are a royal screw-up. Just be done. Be gone. I don't, I don't want you feeding on me anymore. And it's not, it doesn't happen. 
Jesus says, whoever, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for this is the will of my Father, that I should lose none that he gives me. If you come to Jesus, it's because you have been given to him from the Father. Have you thought about this? Have you ever read this and thought about this? Say, what gift do you give to Jesus? The Father gives the gift of a people to Jesus because of his faithfulness to die on the cross. So every time you place faith in Jesus Christ, whenever you trust him for salvation, you are one of God's gifts to his son, saying here is another for the people that you are dying for. Jesus promises that he will so accept, so love, so protect that none will ever be lost. This is why Jesus says there's no guessing, there's no wondering, there's only the promise. Whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. It is absolutely glorious. So why don't they believe? If Jesus is the bread of life that satisfies our souls, if all who come to him and feed on him will never be cast out, why don't they believe? Is the promise faulty? Is God's plan not going to come about? Verse 41, the Jews grumbled about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Have you noticed that that the longer they've talked with him, the more resistant the people have become, the more hardened they have become to the message that Jesus is saying? Even when he speaks plainly to them, they just don't want to hear what he has to say. The people refuse to listen. It's become clear he is the bread of life, and now they lose it. They become indignant. Oh, come on. He didn't come down from heaven. This is Joseph's son. We know who this is. And Jesus basically stops them, and he says, Look, there's no need for you to complain anymore. Because the reality is you are trying to pick me apart, to analyze me, to use your own wisdom to try and decipher who I am and what I've come to do, and it doesn't work. That's not the way this game works. That's not the way life is played out in the kingdom of God. You're not believing me because God has not opened your eyes to believe. This is what Jesus says in verse 43. He answered them, Do not grumble among among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, frankly, that's a tough pill for some of us to take. That's a tough pill. Why? Because it cuts across the very core of our prideful hearts. We want to be smart enough. We want to be good enough to be able to figure out life on our own, including go to God. We want to be the ones that are able to stand and say, Hey, I was... I was wise enough. I was spiritually in tune enough and I saw who Jesus was and I went to him and now I'm okay. But Jesus says it doesn't work that way. If you are going to come to God through the Son, then God is the one that has to make the first move. He is the one that has to draw you by his sovereign grace. And some people don't like that. Some people, some people mischaracterize that and portray it as a violent and a demeaning act. Some people have even called it bullying or divine rape. How could you say such a thing about God? That he would force his will on you. It's not forceful at all. Listen to the very way Jesus explains it. He quotes from Isaiah 54. It is written, he says, in the prophets, and they all will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Learning, teaching, does that sound like forcefulness? Does it sound like someone's grabbing you in a divine headlock and shoving you to Christ and telling you you have to believe? It doesn't to me. That sounds more like someone patiently working with you. 
lovingly taking you through and saying, this is who my son is. Do you see? Do you understand? And that's what Jesus is saying here. The drawing that God does is not forced. It is not harsh. It is a picture of the fulfillment of the promise that when Jesus comes, God will send his spirit to give us new hearts and he will put the law into our hearts so we will truly and genuinely love Jesus by God's spirit. God opens our eyes and frees us from what Paul calls slavery to sin so that our hearts will not be hardened like these people by the gospel. Instead, we will be able to see clearly who Jesus is. And in seeing clearly who Jesus is, we will freely trust in him as the bread of life. Understand, friends, this is grace for God to do this. This is good because apart from that left to ourselves, we would never believe. Verse after verse from Old Testament and New Testament says that apart from Christ, we are enslaved and in bondage to sin and all we will ever do is sin. What we need is somebody outside of us. We need God to draw us to Christ. We need God to give us his spirit, to open our eyes, to give us a new heart that we may see completely clearly who Jesus is and in seeing that, enjoy, willingly trust him for ourselves. Now some hear this and they begin to wonder, I think I'm a Christian, but did the Father really draw me? Am I really saved? I understand the impulse behind that question, but it's a completely unnecessary one. Remember what Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you come to Jesus, Jesus is never going to stop and say, the Father didn't draw you, go away. If you're going to Jesus, it's because the Father drew you. And Jesus says, come and welcome, sit and eat, dine on me, and you will never hunger or thirst again. And furthermore, you'll never be cast out. If you've truly come and believed, Jesus says, you have eternal life from God. So there's no need to worry. In fact, this is what builds up our assurance. Salvation is not about us. It's not about ourselves remaining good and continuing to believe in God saying, okay, you're still in. No, God is the one who draws us, who enables us to freely choose Christ. And in freely choosing Christ, God scoops us up and protects us so that none will be lost until the day of Christ's return. James Boyce tells the story of an old Scotsman who needed to make a voyage across the Atlantic back when steamerships was the only mode of transportation. He didn't have much money after buying the ticket, and so he knew he would not be able to afford the food on the boat. And so what he did was to stock up on crackers and cheese and milk, and he took these things with him on the ship. And you can imagine what happened. There's no refrigerator in his cabin. So it's not long before the crackers are stale, The cheese is moldy and the milk has soured. And he's gone a day without eating and there's one more day left on the voyage and he thinks to himself, I have got to get something to eat. I'm going to go, I'm going to to spoil myself, I'm going to spend, I don't know how much it's going to cost, but at least one good meal before I disembark in America. And so he puts on his, his nicer clothes and he goes down to the galley and he sees the head steward and he says, how much is it for a meal? He says, what do you mean? He says, listen, man, how much is it for a meal? I want to buy a meal. And he says, well, you can't buy a meal. And the Scotsman gets a little indignant. He says, why can't I buy a meal? He says, because it's not for sale. It's part of the price of your ticket. You go in whenever you want and eat as much as you want. And the Scotsman was completely crestfallen. Here he had been in his cabin with all this stale crackers and this moldy cheese and this soured milk while before him is offered as much as he could ever want to eat. A banquet to more food than he'd ever seen in his life. 
Friends, some of us are walking around in this life on stale cheese and moldy bread and sour milk. And Jesus is saying, come, don't feast on the things of this world. They will leave you hollow. They will leave you empty. They will leave you not satisfied. But come to me. Feed your soul on me. I am the bread of life. And if you come to me, you will never hunger or thirst again. How could Jesus do this? How could Jesus promise us? Jesus says that this is the reality of life because he says in verse 51, the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus came, as we've already said this morning, he came to die. He came to offer his life as an atoning sacrifice so that God's wrath would be poured out on Christ instead of sinners like us who deserve God's wrath. And when we look to Christ and believe that he is the bread of life, when we go to him to find salvation with God, then God considers all of our sins which deserve eternal damnation and hell judged by Christ on the cross so that we can be freely forgiven and brought into fellowship and right relationship with God. Friends and loved ones, whether for the first time or as one who has come years ago, do not make the priority of your life the things of this world. But look to Jesus in faith and find lasting satisfaction and joy for your souls. Father, we are thankful beyond words for the bread of life that you've given to us in your Son. Father, help us not to dishonor his name. Father, help us not to dishonor his name or do ourselves harm in trying to find satisfaction in other things. God, you have made us for yourself, and we are restless, we are empty, until our lives are united to you. Father, help us to look to Christ, who is the bread of life. Help us to find life and salvation in him and him alone. Amen. As a response.